I'm Rachel Hollis, and I've built a multi-million dollar media company with a high school diploma and the free information I found on the internet. In the 15 years that I've been building and scaling my company, I have become deeply passionate about helping other entrepreneurs to do the same. So each week, I'll be sharing tangible and tactical advice and inspiring interviews with the same intention. These are the tools to change your life and your business. This is the Rise Podcast. How are you? What are you up to? What's happening in your world right now? Well, thanks, Rachel. First of all, I just want to say I'm really grateful to have this opportunity. I'm a huge fan and admirer. And like you said, I know we've been trying to figure this out. And I just really am grateful to be having this conversation with you. So first of all, thank you so much. And yeah, I've actually been well. And and I say that there's a bit of, you know, when, when you say that, there's a bit of discomfort when you're saying that right now. But I definitely have felt that the stillness and the silence and almost the, the steadiness has been really powerful for me. And because I've been healthy and safe, I've really been trying to use this as a time of how I can be of service to others because I felt like I feel healthy and safe, which I think is such a blessing right now. So for me, I've, I've been in that space. Uh, I'm also extremely excited and nervous because this is my first book ever. And so there's that, there's that nerves of like, I've never done this before. and I don't know what this feels like. And at the same time, this real excitement that I finished writing this book a year ago now, and it's finally going to make its way into people's hands and hearts. And so, so there's that feeling as well. So that's, that's kind of how I am right now. So what, what's the actual date that the book comes out? So the book comes out on 8th of September. Okay, so we're very close. And it's really interesting to be launching a book in the world that we're living in right now, especially your first book, because there isn't a frame of reference for what else it might be. It just will be whatever it is. And I, I think that there's there's something really beautiful about that process if you can kind of allow it to be whatever it's going to be. Because I think, you know, Dave had this really, I feel like he had a really hard situation with the timing of his book because it was right at the beginning, right? So nobody knew what was going on. Nobody knew what was happening. And I mean, on a, I can't even remember what day of the week it was, like on a Monday night, he was leaving the next day. So Tuesday morning, he was leaving on book tour. And on that Monday night, I was like, I think this is getting really bad. Like, I don't know if people are going to be allowed to be in a room together. And then that next day, he found out that it was was done. And so I know that was really difficult for him to sort of manage. Did you have to manage your expectations of kind of what you thought this was versus what it will be now? Or are you the kind of person that's like, I'm here for the ride, like whatever it is. <laughs> So I had a similar experience, but I had a bit more time. So I had Dave on the show and I interviewed him and I think we did an Instagram live together as well. And then in two weeks time, my book was meant to release two weeks after his or around Oh, time. wild. So, okay. So I had a bit more time than he did for my publisher and I to make somewhat of a more informed decision, whatever that meant at the time. And so we made the decision that the book would get pushed back because Books were obviously considered non-essential goods. Right. Obviously, everyone was reacting to the situation at hand and it didn't feel right. And of course, I know exactly, I can only empathize with how Dave felt because of where he was in that, that he didn't get that time. 
And yeah. for me, having had that time, and, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart, I think I'm in the latter part of what you were saying, that I really feel like my purpose is to try and serve with the gifts I've been given and try and make a difference with the abilities and the ideas and the wisdom that I've learned. And when my book got pushed back from April to September, I was actually okay about it because I thought this doesn't stop me from living my purpose. Right. Like my purpose is to want to serve people and to make a difference. And the book is one way to do that. And it's something I really believe in. Obviously, I've spent so much time on it, but it's not going to stop me. So what we did is I pivoted to offering meditations every single day. We did meditations on Facebook and Instagram for 20 minutes a day. The goal was to do 20 days. We did 40 days. It was obviously absolutely free. And every single day for 20 minutes, and then it ended up going to like an hour every day. I was just sharing meditation because I was looking at what people were doing. And I saw John Legend sing a song on his piano. And I was like, okay, I can't do that. I can't sing or play the piano. And then I saw someone teaching a workout from the top of their roof. And I was like, okay, that, that's not my thing. And I was like, what can I share to help people? And I realized that even though I couldn't solve anyone's issues, if I could give them an opportunity to find 20 minutes of peace and calm a day, then that may help them. And so we did 40 days. And Rachel, the most amazing thing is that we had 20 million people tune in over 40 days. And 90% of them, when I would invite them for a informal chat at the end on the Instagram live, they would tell me that they'd never meditated before, before mm-hmm. this time. And so it was this beautiful moment of just finding another way to feel connected to my community and feel of purpose and service without feeling it all attached in the form of a book or, a, or an item, even though that was very important to me and is. Did you, have you meditated your whole life? Was that a part of your upbringing? So I was introduced to meditation probably when I was 10 minutes, 10 years old, 10 minutes, 10 years old. Yeah, no, when I was 10 years old, And it was more ritualistic, and I would say it was closer to prayer. It was more closer to prayer when I was introduced to about 10 years old, and it was 10 minutes a day. But I really started meditating, and I've been meditating for about one and a half to two hours a day since I was 18. And that became my daily practice. So it's now been around 15 years. I'm going to be 33 this year. So it's been around 15 years of meditating for a minimum of one and a half hours a day. And it's become part of like life and breathing to me. And there are days when I still don't feel like doing it. And there are days that I absolutely love it and feel completely immersed. But I'll say this, that I feel like good habits, you only notice their benefits when you do them for a certain amount of time and then you miss or skip a day. And that to me is the sign that you've got a good habit. It's like eating, like you don't notice that you eat or digest food every day because you do it because you do it. And then the day you don't eat is the day you feel, wow, I haven't eaten. Or if you're sleeping well every day, you don't notice it until the day you have disturbed sleep or having a shower every day. You don't notice it until the day you don't shower. And then you're like, wow, I smell. Right. Right. So it's, it's like a good habit. And that's what meditation has been like for me is that sometimes I may even take it for granted But if I meditate poorly one day or I wake up later one day or my quality of meditation is not as strong, I recognize the difference. Absolutely. I think something interesting about that, this idea that we sort of don't notice how great these habits are until they're removed is then sort of in order for that to happen, you have to have consistency of those habits every single day. And I would say, because 
look, there are 100% there are people listening to this right now who meditate every day and they're like, yes, Jay, I hear you. I'm on this with you. And then there are people listening to this who are going to be like, all right, you know, meditation. I know it's that thing I should do kind of like I should floss my teeth, but do I, do I really, you know, that whole thing. And so the, the thing that I would say to those listeners is you have to do something consistently every single day, even if, like you said, the quality of the meditation isn't there. So the example that I would give is working out. I work out every single day and I say that I move my body every day. Uh, So maybe I'll do a run, maybe I'll do stretching, Pilates, dance, like I'll go play with my kids. But every single day, I will do something. And it took me doing that for a really long time until that habit could truly become ingrained and a part of me so that I don't have to think about it anymore. Would you say that it's the same for you in sort of building up to something new like that? Yeah, what I find, Rachel, is, and and I completely agree with everything you just said, what I find sometimes is that what you really need is a deep, immersive experience to believe something has value. So what I mean by that is, if someone told me, to my now wife, if someone told me when we first met, you've only got five minutes a day to see each other, let's see if you figure out if you want to get married or if you think you're in love, it could take forever. But if you spent a weekend with someone or you spent a week with someone or you spend an immersive amount of time with someone, it becomes much more apparent whether there's some sort of connection there. So I feel the same with working out and meditation or eating right. It's almost like if you just for one day or one weekend just really immersed, and I know you do your beautiful rise events, it's almost like that. Like when you have that immersive experience for a few days, you realize, oh, wait a minute, when I hear a good podcast every day, I feel inspired. When I read every day, I feel empowered. When I uh, work out or move, like you said, every day, I feel better and my mood goes up. I think those immersive experiences give us the belief that we should do the five minutes a day. So I agree with you. Sometimes it's great to just start with one simple habit a day that builds. But if you really want to try something that you feel is quite new to you or quite alien to you, dive into it deeply for a day or a weekend. And when you experience that benefit, you want to do the five and 10 minutes every day. That's great. That's a, that's a really good reminder. And I think the idea of immersion is so powerful too. Whenever we can pull ourselves out of our regularly scheduled programming, right? Like whenever we can sort of pull ourselves away, I think that's why, you know, anyone who's ever gone to a personal growth conference, that's multiple days, Yes, what you're learning is so powerful and you're around the energy of all these people who are there for the same reason. That's also powerful. But what I always think is the biggest piece of that is that you are getting you are removing yourself from what you normally do. I think of years ago when I went to my first personal growth conference. I'm a mom, I've got all these kids at home, I'm busy, I'm working. And we, you know, you have your habits and your routines and inside of that structure that you've built, inside of this narrative, you've also unconsciously built truths about who you think you are and what you think you're capable of. And so when you're removed and then you're immersed in something fully, I feel like you have this opportunity to, this sounds very dramatic, but you sort of question everything right? You're like, oh, wait, this actually doesn't work for me. And oh, this relationship is no, and this is a limiting belief. And so there is something really powerful. My challenge then to you is how would you suggest people do immersion 
inside of a quarantine world that we're living in? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And 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 I'm totally with you. I I think that disconnect or distance from normality allows you to create a new life. And and that's why almost these conferences or experiences that people go on. And by the way, that was my three years of monk life. It was very much like that. I was completely disconnected from what my reality was in London. And that helped me reformat and uh, refine and, and also just redirect my life. And I feel that's what it is. It's almost like a redirection. So you're right. How do you do that in this scenario? So the way I think about it, and, and I know you said that, you know, you really believe that your community really wants practical advice. So this is one of the things that I think is really resonating with people right now. And it's around how you transform the energy and environment that you're currently in. So there's a beautiful teaching that I learned living as a monk. And it, it goes something like this. It said, location has energy and time has memory. So we'll focus on the first part. Location has energy. And what I mean by that is there's a reason why when someone goes to a RISE conference, they're more likely to discover more about themselves because the energy of that environment, the intention that's been kind of like uh, imbued in that space is coming from that desire to serve, support people and help people grow. So what I'd suggest to people is start looking at whether it's corners of your room and apartment or whether it's rooms in your home, start seeing them as spaces with purpose rather than spaces that are confused. So I'll explain what I mean by that. So often we eat where we sleep, we sleep where we work, and we work where we're meant to eat. And so we end up confusing the energy of every environment. We do everything from the same couch. We watch TV there, we eat there, we work there, we spend time with our kids there. And by the way, I'm coming from an coming from the perspective of whether you, I lived in a 500 square foot apartment in New York and me and my wife both work from home. So neither of us were going out to work. And so we had, and, and yeah, and I can see Rachel's reaction. Like it was hard. And I'm on Facebook live and Instagram live. And she's like on her blender trying to cook because that's her world. <laughs> and you know, people are like, Jay, what's that in the background? Anyway, the point being that we had corners that were dedicated to space. So what I mean by that is there's a reason why when you go to sleep, you struggle to sleep because you're also eating or watching TV in that space. So that's confusing right. the energy. Uh, when you're at your couch and you want to be entertained, but now you're distracted by email, it's because you're confusing it. So really create spaces of purpose in your home where you go to that space to do a particular activity and that simplifies the energy of that space. And it's just a simple habit saying, I sleep in my bedroom, I watch TV on the couch, I work on the edge of my dining or kitchen table, and, and I cook in the kitchen, right? It's just simplifying that. So that's something that's practical and I think gives you that immersion, at least in that room. The, the second thing that's really powerful is how you can actually give places in your home a different energy and a different immersive experience. And immersion happens through three things. And you'll experience that as at a rise or a self-development conference or wherever you go. There are three triggers to environments. Sights, what you can see, sense what you can smell and sounds what you can hear. So the first question I'd ask you is, what is the first thing you wake up to in the morning? What's the first thing that you see? And studies show that 80% of us see our phones the first thing in the morning and the last thing at night, right? That's the last thing we see in the first thing in the morning. Why not start your day off with an empowering quote that you love or a paragraph from a text that you love or a picture of your family or a beautiful piece of art that inspires you. 
that can be an immersive experience. If you just woke up every morning and spent 30 seconds just absorbing that, you're going to feel different. Let's talk about scents quickly. Uh, I don't know, Rachel, if you're a fan, but I love going to spas and I love getting a good massage oh. and I miss them right now. So I miss a spa. Oh my gosh. I miss, I, I miss a steam room. Yes. What would I give to sit in a steam room right now for eucalyptus? Yes. So, well, there you go. So what I've been doing, and I'm not even joking about this. So my wife is massively into essential oils. And the thing I love about essential oils is the reason why we feel relaxed in a spa is because they have these scents in the air. And so what I do is when I'm in a shower and I have a hot shower, I'll just drop some eucalyptus in the shower. Smart. And it turns into a natural steam. So scents are so powerful. So ask yourself, what's the scent that you go to sleep to? What's the scent near your work table? Do you have a diffuser or a candle that you can light as, as part of your ritual every day before you start working and breathe in some eucalyptus, lavender, sandalwood, whatever it is, and you'll see this calming effect. As monks, we had candles and incense around us at all times. And I remember just feeling rejuvenated simply through inhaling a scent. It's so simple. And the third and final practical one of sight, sense, and sounds is what you hear. And what I realized, Rachel, like I don't, you know, I know that you love music and I see you dancing at your events and I love it. I love the energy. Music has the ability to change our mood in, in multiple ways. And music I don't, is medicine. I music is agree. medicine. Yeah. Music is also meditation. It's like mm -hmm. you, you get absorbed and you, you're singing without even noticing and you're dancing without even noticing. And, and music is such an underestimated superpower for shifting your environment. If you walk into a room and it has an upbeat song, you'll feel different. If you move into a room and it has calming, soothing sounds to fall asleep to. And so naturally what I try and do is every room in the house is transformed through sight, scent, and sound so that I have new immersive experiences even in my small space. It's interesting because I haven't really thought about those specific things before, but I am, I, I bring intention into every part of my life that I can possibly think of. So as you're speaking, I'm like, oh, that is, I'm 100% very big on the spaces inside my house serve a very specific purpose and they don't like I would never bring my computer into my bed to work. I would never bring it into the TV room where the kids and I watch movies together. Like though uh, every space is sacred for its own reason. And I think what I thought of as you were speaking too is because we have so many entrepreneurs who listen to this podcast, so many creators, artists, writers. And so I think also as you're thinking through space, I'd love to recommend too that I think we get creative energy in different environments. And I think what inspires each of us as individuals creatively changes. And so for me personally, I cannot work in a room that doesn't have a ton of natural light. It freaks me out. It makes me feel claustrophobic. I don't feel like I can write well. So I'm really mindful about what is the space that I need in order to be as creative as possible. I also thought as you were speaking about the idea of sight, scent, smell, that if you identify things that make you feel really good, those are also things that are transferable, right? So um, for instance, I have a ritual that I used to do always before I would write, no matter where I was. 
So I would always have a shot of espresso. I would have the same gum. I would put on the same song in my AirPods and it was sort of setting, okay, now it's time to write. And I did that because I was traveling so much that I couldn't rely on an individual space to be my source of creativity. So I sort of created this ritual in myself. And so as you were speaking, I was thinking, I love like if it's the smell of, you know, citrus and the essential oil is citrus and peppermint, and that's your combination for creativity. Well, that's something that you can bring with you no matter where you are, which is really powerful. I love that. That's, that's exactly it, that it becomes your environment in your pocket and you can carry it. You're so right. You could recreate it in a coffee shop. You could recreate it on holiday. You could create, recreate it while you're traveling for work. And, and it's just like, that's what I mean by time has memory too. And your, your mind has memory in the sense that if you've had a positive experience with a particular scent and a sight, and now you've trained it, now when you take that away, I have this, I have an instrumental playlist that I listen to every time I'm writing scripts yeah. or I'm writing because I know that that's the script, that's the instrumental that helps me feel most connected. And I really find that when you take it everywhere with you, you actually just start to see the power and the strength of it. And time has memory because when you do something at the same time every day, it becomes easier. So sometimes we struggle when we're trying to shift the time of what we do every day. And by the way, I'm talking, I I totally understand that you can't do everything at the same time every day. You have kids that are trying to get to sleep. You have calls that change. But the point is, it's it's the rule, not the exception, right? The exception is that you'll miss a few days and you'll get three out of seven days right. But if you can do the same thing at the same time for three days a week, that's a win, right? It doesn't have to be seven days. And it can just cement that habit and make your mind more ready for that. So I'm, I'm really glad to hear it in your life, Rachel. That, that's like a perfect example of, of how it makes sense. So I love that. Well, I think too, I learned this in, I learned this probably in an unhealthy way. When I was a younger writer, I can now look back and understand that I was giving myself really unhealthy or negative environmental cues that I felt like were necessary for me to be creative. I I didn't understand it until years later and I was speaking with a therapist. I was talking about my writing process, which felt grueling and hard and just like this physical weight. Like I just would make myself miserable. I would write for hours until like I would physically feel it in my all of these things that I did because I think that maybe that was my first experience or maybe I sort of fell for that myth that you know it was like the tortured artist and you needed to be in some kind of pain in order to create yeah um and it wasn't until a therapist said to me like have you ever tried to create from a place of love (laughs) have you ever tried to create from a place of grace have you ever tried to do things that were good for you before you begin to to write and so I learned it in an, an unhealthy way. I didn't understand that I was doing that. Have you always been this enlightened and aware or do you feel like you also have learned things the hard way? No, I, I so I dedicate my book and, and to my wife. And in the beginning, I say to my wife, who's more monk than I'll ever be, because my monk and my wife has these very natural monk-like qualities and she just exudes them and when I met her parents and I see her relationship with them, I can see why she has this very joyful, natural energy. For me, I'm, I'm, I can relate to what you're saying. So for me, it's been, I always consider myself the person who had to do hard work. I've always considered myself a good, well-intentioned, kind person, 
But if I really talk about all these habits that I'm speaking about and the, the habit transformation I've had to change, that has been serious work. I mean, we had to wake up at 4 a.m. As monks, I didn't enjoy waking up at 4 a.m. My wife still wakes up at 5 a.m. every day to meditate. And I join her at like 6.30 or something like that. <laughs> like I'm the, and, and so for me, it's uh, I, I've definitely had to put in the work. I've definitely had to see how these habits can be beneficial. But having employed them and engaged them in my life, I can see that they aren't just good things inside a book or they're not just good ideas. They actually, in implementation, allow more space in the mind, allow more calmness in the day. And by the way, it's not always about calm and peace. It's like, I don't think that getting to calm and peace is the goal. And I think that's actually a misleading goal. The goal is actually to have the tools to navigate chaos with calm and peace. So it's, it's not about having calm and peace. Like I wouldn't say that my life is naturally calming or peaceful. And I don't think your life would be. We, we used to travel a lot. We have busy schedules. There's lots of phone calls. There's meetings. I don't, I don't get to meditate for eight hours a day anymore. My life isn't just all like, you know, just all roses. Uh, my day is actually can be quite stressful. But what gives me great joy and faith is that I'm navigating that pressure with calm and peace within that chaos. And I think that's, that's the real tool that we're trying to learn with all of these habits rather than the expectation that, oh, I should feel some sort of serenity uh, every single how, day. How old were you when you became a monk? I was 22, 21 going on 22. And so, I don't think I know this about your story, but why? <laughs> why? So what, so what prompted that? So I was growing up, born and raised in London, and I always joke that I grew up in a family where I had three options, which was to be a doctor, a lawyer, or a failure. Uh, those were the three alternate paths that were available to me, and I'm sure oh my gosh. many people can agree. Uh, many people can relate in different ways with family expectations and expectations of friends. And I was going down the third route by doing business and behavioral uh, science and management and all these kind of tasks and. I was just trying to find a safe, comfy job. I thought life was about getting a good job, marrying someone, buying a house, having kids, and you know, maybe playing golf, I guess. Like that, that's what life felt like. And I was really fortunate because when I was 18, I was going to hear entrepreneurs speak, celebrities, athletes, entrepreneurs, people from all different walks of life. And I loved hearing about rags to riches stories and people who went from nothing to something. And once my friend told me that a monk was speaking, and invited me to go and hear a monk speak. And my honest, dismissive, arrogant, egotistic nature was, what am I going to learn from a monk? Like, what, what, what do I learn from someone who has nothing? Like, staying still? And, and that's, the, uh, that's the irony, Rachel, and I'm sure you can relate to this in some ways. It's the irony of finding yourself is so humbling because the day I went there expecting to find nothing from this monk, I, I completely found a new redirection of my life. And, and the truth is that when I was 18, now when I reflect, I think I'd met people who were strong. I'd met people who were rich. I'd met people who were beautiful and attractive. And I'd met people who were knowledgeable and intelligent. But I don't think I'd ever met anyone who was truly happy and, and content. And the monk that I met that day, he just had this natural, effortless joy about him. And, and at 18, I was thinking to myself, I've never experienced that. I want to know where he has that from. So I started spending all my vacations with him. So I'd spend half my vacations interning 
uh, at a corporate company in London. And I'd spend the other half living as a monk, training with him in India. And then when I graduated, I decided to turn down my corporate job, job offers and live as a full-time monk. So that was, that's, the, the, that's the short version of why. Uh, it and was, your parents reacted how? Oh, wow. So, so my desire was, I just thought, what a better way to live my life than serving people and solving this puzzle of life. Like, I was like, I want to purify myself. I want to cleanse myself. I want to understand how to go beyond ego. I don't want it to be a concept. I really want to be compassionate. And my parents were just like, what is going on? Like, you know, my, my parents have been very, I'd have to say my parents have always been very offering freedom to me to make my own decisions. But my extended family is where I felt that kind of questioning of, oh, you've wasted all your parents' effort in your education. No one's ever going to give you a job again. Oh, you've, you've really let your parents down. Who's going to take care of them? Like the pressure that I experienced at that age to leave was really high. And I had so many friends saying to me as well, like, well, what are we going to talk to you about now if you're going to be a monk? Like, what will we have in common? And I had guy friends saying to me like, well, we can never talk about women again. So what am I going to talk to you about? And I was just like, really? Like, is that all we had in common? Like, is that the level of our relationship? And so, you know, it was, it was a lot at the time. It was very, there was definitely a lot of pressure, but it, it turned out to be a really, what you said, a really good three-year conference <laughs> in, in self, <laughs> in self-development. That, that's literally what it was. And then when you made the decision, was it always meant to be three years or you were there and then you made the decision, okay, it's now it's time for me to move to the next thing. So I thought I was going to do it for the rest of my life. And I really believe that. I don't think anyone else did, but I definitely did in my heart. And after three years, the great thing about all self-development and personal growth, like you said, it makes you question everything. And the biggest thing I realized about myself is that I wasn't meant to be a monk. I really enjoyed uh, presenting and media and I really enjoyed being with people and understanding them. And I, I really love my life that I have right now. But it was the monk training that got me to that level of self-awareness that I actually wanted to share these teachings and wisdom in a different way. And so when I left and my teacher also encouraged me that he felt that I'd be able to share what I'd learned if I'd left, uh, that was really tough because that was me almost coming back as a failure and as a monk reject. <laughs> and everyone's just like, what? Like you failed at being a monk. And so I came back three years on when all my friends now were making good money, they were in relationships, they were settling down or at least buying their first home. And all of a sudden I feel behind and all of a sudden now all that extended family opinions, expectations and obligations now feel like they might be right, that I am gonna fail. I am never going to know how to make money and I don't fit into society anymore. So that was again, like another coming back to it was almost harder. Well, I wonder too, because these are wild identity shifts. You know, it's it's walking away from what you had to become a monk. And then again, choosing to walk away from that life, stepping back into, but now, this sounds very dramatic, but now you belong to nothing. Now there is, you belong only to you. Yeah. There is no place where you fit in, you sort of neatly fit into what it is. And I think- I've been learning a lot lately and talking a lot lately about ego, right? And and what it is to have an ego death and to experience something like that and to have the identity shift 
do you feel like you walked back into that situation and there was no ego about who am I or what did that feel like to kind of figure it all out all over again? Whenever we disconnect from an identity or a part of our identity, whether it's being a monk, whether it's a relationship, whether it's a job, I feel like there's a natural pain for the ego because it now doesn't know the safe security of saying, this is what I am. So it's almost like having a unknown status in a company, a job, a relationship or life or situation is actually uncertainty. And that's kind of been drilled into us since we were younger, right? I think about it often with like, when you were young and you were the quiet kid in school, you or you were alone, you were considered the loner. Or if you only had five people turn up to your birthday, you were considered unpopular. And so we've always been told, like, if you're kind of on your own or you're doing something different and you don't fit in, then you're kind of weird, a loner or unpopular. And it's funny because we also see that as people grow up, like when men or women are single, if they're 35, it's kind of like, oh, have you, like, why are you alone? Like, it's always seen, we always see loneliness as a negative thing. And so our ego holds on to togetherness in a false way, even if it doesn't make any sense, because we've been scared of being in solitude and we've been scared of being alone. And so uh, one of the things that we definitely focused on as monks was that, you know, in the English vocabulary, there are two words for being alone. One is loneliness and the other is solitude. But the one we talk about is loneliness. You never hear people talk about solitude. And Paul Tillich writes that solitude is the strength of being alone, or monks would consider that solitude is the power of being alone, where you discover yourself. And so the ego has constantly been drawn to even false togetherness over scary singleness. And, and because of that, we try and stay away from uncertainty around our identity and we'll hold on to false identities or false safe identities. And so whenever we have a disconnect, so when I had a disconnect from being a monk, my ego was crushed because it was naturally crushed because everyone was like, oh, so what are you now? You didn't want to be a graduate. You became a monk and now you failed at that. You're, you're, you're in no person's land. Like, what are you? And, and that was really a, a freeing moment now, when I look back, when I was there, it was really painful. I did not enjoy it at all. I have to be honest. But now when I look back, I think, how fortunate am I that I even left being a monk? Because it allowed me to let go of the fear that I had to be anything that people understood. And, and I started to surround myself with a small group of people that understood me, that would call me out if I was doing something that they didn't feel was aligned with who I should become and who I want to become. And that their opinions did matter. So often I think we go through extremes of like everyone's opinion matters and the ego makes us do this. The ego goes, everyone's opinion matters. So every person on social media with um, a random account called XYZ7342, their opinion matters all the way through to the other ego, which is no one's opinion matters, only my opinion matters. And, and the truth is neither of those are realistic, true or sustainable. The truth is, my opinion matters most, of course, but there, I need some people in my life whose opinion matters because that's how I'm going to grow. And you choose those, you curate those people. So I think the ego always tries to take us on these uh, crazy trips 
And it's almost like our role to, to find that middle ground and that balance and that centeredness. It's interesting. I talk a, a lot about loss of identity in my next book, but this idea that there are several different types of identity loss, and this is like as described by me, not a professional in this sense at all, but that I describe them using something I know nothing about, which is basketball. But the first is that you long for an identity that you feel like should be yours. You deserve this identity. You've worked really hard for it. And no matter what you do, you can't get it. Again, I don't know much about basketball, but like you're going to make the three-pointer. And no matter how much you sort of practice this thing, you can't get this shot. And the example that I think of for that in my community a lot is women who are battling infertility. Mm. So they want so desperately to be a mother and this is the identity that they've called for themselves. And now they struggle watching other people claim this identity that they feel like should be theirs. The second kind of identity loss is you had an identity that was taken from you. Mm -hmm. So the example that I think of in the book, I do a lot of work with service members and members of the military. And I had the opportunity a little over a year ago to meet with gold star families, which are families who've lost their service member in service. And I was with Navy SEAL partners, wives, and Navy SEALs are badass. They're so incredible. And their sense of identity is so freaking strong that then that identity also is part of their family's identity. And so I'm sitting in a room with gold star families and all of these women who their identity was taken from them. So they're saying, I was his wife. Who am I now? Right. And then there's the identity that someone else has given you that you never asked for. Yes. Right. So this is like the sports analogy is your dad was a baseball player and he wanted you to be a baseball player and you want to live into exactly who daddy wanted you to be, even though you love to play basketball. So we have the identity that someone else has given us that we sort of want to make them happy. And then the last one that I think of is one where you have an identity that other people have given you that you never agreed to. Um, and the example I think of this one, you mentioned social media, is when other people have a perception of who you are, they've called your identity and they've said, this is who you are. This is who you should live into. And we can get tripped into kind of falling into that trap. And it's exactly as you're describing that our ego says, whatever you do, don't upset the community because the community, like we got to be together and we got to make sure that they like us. And so we'll live into this vision of who they want us to be, even if that's not something that we chose for ourselves. And I think the, the awful danger of that is that you could go through your entire life, never actually knowing who you really are. Right? Absolutely. I love that, by the way. That's so well described and so well broken down. It's, it's so beautiful to, to, to hear that. I, I can't wait to learn. Those. And the analogy works perfect, by the way. Uh, but, <laughs> Thank you. But no, that's exactly it. Like it's, it's, I, I describe it in my book as, as method acting. So when you look at method actors, and I give the example of Daniel Day-Lewis when he acts in Gangs of New York, and in preparation for that role, He's speaking in the accent. He's wearing the coat from the century. He's uh, behaving like the butcher. 
And all of a sudden he said that he almost went mad after the movie was out and after he stopped playing that role because he was still playing that role. Uh, another example that I share is uh, Jared Leto when he played the Joker in uh, Suicide Squad. He was sending his uh, teammates, his colleagues, the other actors, his co-stars, dead rats in the mail. I saw because, that. It's yeah. too random. I just saw that the other really? day. Really? Oh, wow. Yeah. So yeah. Because, because he wanted to get into the mindset. And so you start thinking about how many roles do we all play? We play a role at work. We play a role at home. We play a role with our friends. We play a role with our school friends from back in the day. We play a role with our family. And so we're playing so many roles as method actors that in playing all these roles, you forget the real you. And it's not that we don't need to play a role or there isn't a reason where the role is useful. Sometimes a role can actually be useful at work. It can be useful with certain people that we may not connect with. But you can't start thinking that role is you. Right, You can't start thinking that you are that role and that role is you because now when that role is taken away, that means you feel there is no you. But there was a you before, there is a you still and there will be a you after every single role that you play in your life. Uh, and that's, that's really where we're trying to get to. Well, and I think also, you know, a role can be taken away or you could find yourself so deeply inside of those roles that you actually don't know who you are. And I think that's why people stay inside of this space. So in my community, I have a lot of women and I have a lot of moms. And so this is something that I get questions on a lot. And I work with my community on a lot is women. If there's one thing I've heard more than anything else over the last 10 years, it's moms who come up to me at a book signing, send me an email, DM and say, I've lost myself. I don't know who I am. I spend all my day like changing diapers, feeding the kids. What all I do is for other people so much so that if I even had an hour for myself, I have no idea how I would spend it. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, you had this beautiful gift of this experience of immersion and this time to find yourself. I'm trying to think of practically if people are hearing us say this, they're like, dang it, you guys, that's me. I really don't feel like, I feel like I live into these expectations or kind of play this part. How do you even begin to identify what does your heart really love? What are you really into? Like, how does one even start that process? One of my favorite ways to start it off, which you can do right now, is I start doing it with just little likes and dislikes. So whether it's food, whether it's movies, whether it's music, it's, it's just a beautiful way to get to know yourself. So it's almost like when I finish eating a burrito, I know whether I like it or not. Like it's just simple to me whether I like it or not. If I finish watching a movie, it's easy to just check in with myself and go, did I like that movie? Did I enjoy it? Or did I just watch it because someone else does? And so I find like these little quick sense checks after consuming food, content, media, music, whatever it may be, because all you're doing is you're asking yourself. And that's where all of this begins because most of us are asking like, oh, is that okay for you? Did, did you like that food? Did you like that movie? Like we're always reflecting onto, especially I can imagine parents and mothers who are trying to make sure that their kids are happy. But notice you're just doing what you do with someone else with yourself. You're just asking yourself, did I enjoy that? Did I, did I appreciate that? What did I get from it? Why did I like it? So I think just starting that conversation with yourself 
is so powerful. And you want to do that to the point that if someone asked you, what's your favorite three cuisines, you could tell them in order. If someone said to right. you, what's your three move, what's your favorite movies, you could tell them in order. And the order isn't to show off how many movies you know or what you like. It's so that you have such a clear sense of self-awareness. And it all starts with just these really quick checks of, did I enjoy that? Did I not? And so that's the, that's one of the quick ways. The second way, which is a bit more in depth and, and takes a bit more time is what I call in the book, a values audit. And this does require a bit more time, but it is really powerful. And I talk about how sometimes we say we value something in our head and our heart, but what really shows what we value is how we spend our time and how we spend our money. Those two things will really show you your values, your bank statement, and your schedule. Like those two Preach. things yeah. are the mirrors of what you really value. And so I almost think just sitting down with that and looking at it and looking at it with a fun, joyful eye. And this is part of the monk-like thinking where monks and, and really advanced monks, I'm not talking about myself, but really advanced monks almost uh, have a childlike sense to them, not a childish, but a childlike sense of just let's look at everything as an opportunity for growth, not as a way of getting scared or judging ourselves and just looking and going, okay, well, I say I value this, but where am I spending my money and my time? And then asking yourself two really important questions. Whatever I'm pursuing, is it me or is it external? Asking yourself, is the motivation for this goal or this thing that I'm pursuing, is it genuinely coming from me or is it coming from something outside of me? And then after answering that question honestly, the third question is, do I still want it? The choice is yours. You get to choose whether you say no to something now or whether you say yes to something. And that choice is so empowering because you realize it wasn't chosen by parents or society. It was chosen by you. And the reason why we all need to do this is because most of us are trying to find what we did or didn't get from our parents. So in our relationships, we're constantly seeking what we did or didn't get from our parents. And so... That will be a never-ending cycle unless we sit down and ask ourselves, well, I don't want what I did or didn't get from my parents. I want what I want for myself and trying to disconnect the dust from, from the real truth hidden inside of it. I'm so curious, if I looked at your schedule and your bank statement, what would it tell me you value most? So my schedule would tell you that I value my work and purpose the most. I will show it to you now. <laughs> oh, oh that stresses me out oh my god this is my that life is, this that, is my it's all color-coded uh, mine's color-coded too though i do yeah. appreciate that level of yeah. organization so 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 my my schedule would show that the number one thing in my life is uh what i do and my purpose and i consider this to be my purpose so that would be number one and my financial statement i i don't have many expenditures i'd say our biggest expenditures are food because my wife is the biggest foodie. So we spend a lot on groceries and organic foods and vegetables and all that kind of like good stuff and a lot of plant-based products because we're both plant-based. So a ton of plant-based cheeses and food and all the rest of it. So I'd say food is probably one of our biggest expenses and then obviously living and home and things like that. But yeah, I'd say those, those are the things that you'd see. And I would, I would have to agree with that. I, I would definitely agree that I feel so blessed and grateful to get to do what I do every day and I to see it as a responsibility and a and a, a great sense of fortune so I take no complacency there and at the same time my wife and I really value our health 
mm-hmm. and and so you know being together and being healthy is really important to us. And yeah, so I, I would I, say if you looked at my schedule and you looked at my bank statement, it would be health. Yeah. So yeah, so I, I study a lot of. I'm not into sports, but I do. I really admire people who make it to the highest level of sports. Yes, me too. And so I'm as a I, I'm a voracious reader, and I'm constantly. I'm trying to glean the wisdom and I'm trying to see what's the intersectionality, right? So like, what is the thing everyone's saying? Um, So years ago when I built my first morning routine, it was because every entrepreneur and CEO and person I admired, all of them had some kind of morning routine. And in the last couple of years, as I've researched um, the highest level athletes, the top of their game, the thing that I've heard over and over is an investment in health. Mm-hmm. And it is the number one thing that they spend money on is massage therapists and working out and having a trainer and the food that they eat and the all of the things. Yeah. Which is not something that I even occurred to me. But it's like if you're looking at a schedule like yours, that's impossible to do well if you aren't, if the machine is not well. Yes. Right? If absolutely. you're not taking care of this. Absolutely. And and I think that's so true. I, I was just uh, typing it in now because you reminded me of something. There was an article that I read where Conor McGregor, the UFC fighter. Yes, was this share- is one of the podcasts I listened to oh, great. where he heard about someone who... So it was a basketball player, LeBron, LeBron James. Yes. And, yes. <laughs> and he so was... He spent a million dollars. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Yes. So LeBron James, I'm reading this from the article that's on Business Insider that I just typed in. LeBron James spends as much as $1.5 million a year on his health between trainers, right. nutritionists, chefs, and recovery techniques. And, yes. and Conor McGregor said when he read that, he realized he wasn't investing in the right way or something. Yeah, he was like, the- I don't spend any money on that. Yeah. And, and especially for those people where your body is everything and your ability to perform at the highest level, that investment is worth a hundred X, right? Yes, yes. And I think, I think of this, you know, I think of this for us. I think if you're listening to this at home right now and you own a small business or you're a teacher, or you're a mama, I everything, all of our dreams, all of our dreams are dependent on our ability to pull them off. Mm -hmm. And that is absolutely impossible if you're not taking care of yourself spiritually, mentally, emotionally, physically, eating the right thing. So I don't, I'm not into like, I don't have the, you know, the luxury like purse or the jewelry or whatever. That's not my thing, but I do a hundred percent splurge on health stuff. Yes. Cause I'm like this, this is a temple. This is a machine. It needs to be able to function well. It's so funny that you knew the exact thing I was talking about. I know. No, I love it. And I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think it took me a while to get there because I, you know, I feel like when you're young, you feel like Superman or Superwoman and you, you kind of don't realize that your body is going to slow down at all. And then as you get older, you realize, oh, wow, like what my mom and dad told me was right. And I was really fortunate that my wife, I was really focused on the mind from my monk life. And my wife, because she's a dietitian and nutritionist, was really focused on the body. And and she has the mind more naturally. And so she's really encouraged me to take care of my physical health and invest more in it and, and find the right things. And, and I think what you said was beautiful at the beginning, that it is about finding a way that you can make it enjoyable and fun for yourself like it's movement it could be a sport it could be dance it doesn't have to be a treadmill it doesn't have to be 
a, a, a hit routine if you don't want it to be. And I think that's the challenge that we start putting things into boxes like, oh, working out means running and stuff I don't right. enjoy. And actually right. I found like, you know, you may prefer playing tennis and that's a great workout. Absolutely. And, you know, you don't need to. So I, I really feel like finding your movement is is so important for both your mental and physical health. There's a beautiful uh, statement in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition that says, what movement does for your body, stillness does for your mind. And, Ooh, and it's, that's it's, good. Yeah, it's something beautiful to remember. Like what movement does for your body, stillness does for your mind. So it's almost opposite, but both are needed. That's awesome. I think I really was not trying to set this up to be a segue, but it is a beautiful <laughs> segue for the fact that you are one of our speakers at our health conference. Yeah, I can't we're wait. so excited to have you as part of that crew. I'm so um, looking forward to it. It was never, ever my intention to, to get into the health space. But I have this community of people, um, you know, I keep saying this, but predominantly women who I feel like have been sort of brought up in a world that taught them a lot of shame mm -hmm. around their bodies and around the definition of health and the way that they're supposed to look. And that has led to so much emotional turmoil and so much resentment for the gift that this, this body is a gift, but so many women in my community were sending me these notes and asking these questions. And so we started to lean into this a little bit and the intention with the conference or the app or any of the work that we're doing in this space is we want to change the conversation. We believe that it's possible to approach health from a perspective of loving yourself yeah. and caring about yourself and wanting to celebrate who you are and not as punishment. So we're like so freaking excited to have you. Uh, we did our first, you know, live conference in May and we had 50,000 plus people from 83 different countries. And I know a lot of our community has heard of you, but I also know a big portion of them is going to be meeting you for the first time. So I'm so excited. To no, have you. I was so grateful to be a part of it. And I'm so glad you're doing that. I, I genuinely fully agree with you, Rachel, wholeheartedly that that's the root of, of all of it. And, and I, I really love not focusing on the symptoms and the little distractions. Like that's the root of it, that if you are physically, mentally, and spiritually, and emotionally healthy, everything right. becomes more natural and you feel more aligned and you can figure stuff out quicker as opposed to when Absolutely. you have that perception around yourself. And it is true that, again, all of these perceptions have been planted by media and movies and music and the world around us. And that really takes some unlearning and rewiring. And so I think committing to that, and I, I talk a lot about how if you want any change in your life, there are, there are three C's to transformation. So they're coaching, consistency, and community. Without those three mm -hmm. things, you can't change anything. So this, this beautiful conference and event you're doing, it has all three of them. And, and to me, that's the heart of it, that if you're, if you're sitting at home right now or you're listening or watching this, and you're thinking, Jay, I haven't been able to find change in my life. It's usually because one of those three is missing or is weaker. And so we don't have enough coaching. We don't have enough consistency. We don't have community. And when you feel that you're feeling growth in your life, you'll notice it's because you've got those three things aligned. And so, That's you know, really uh, yeah, I'm, I'm with you on, on that health front. It's taken me a lot longer to realize it than I would have liked. Uh, I wish I realized it younger. But hey, you know, there's no point of sitting here in the regret of what we didn't do. Right. And it's important to just start doing it today so that we, we can feel the benefits of it. And yeah, I, I've 
I prioritize, prioritize exercising daily properly for the last three years and it's been life-changing. I, I also know meditation and the meditation that you're bringing now to the world with this book and this conversation, which is so important, will be equally life-changing to listeners, to people watching, to all the readers that you're going to find as part of this purpose-driven life that you have. Uh, where can people get the book? Did you do the audiobook? Please tell me you narrated it. I did. Yes, I did. Perfect. It, it took like 20... Nobody else could narrate your book. That <laughs> would be terrible. Oh, you're so kind. It, it took like 20 hours of, uh, yeah. I think it's about 20 hours of listening. And your throat gets so sore. I had right? licorice tea right next to me. I was like... You drink. don't understand because you're like, oh, it's just talking. But for some reason, you feel like you're dying. And you're in that studio and it's like, yeah, yes. it was... it was No, I did record the audiobook. It's available uh, for pre-order and order as well. And everyone can get the book at thinklikeamonkbook.com. So it's the title of the book, thinklikeamonkbook.com. And when you order it, you also get access to all of my audio meditations and a ton of great nice. workshops as well. So if you pre-order it, you get all of that. But uh, yeah, really appreciate it. And the book's going to be in 40 languages too. So if there's, if there's any countries Incredible. across the world and you'd rather read yes. it, you'd rather read it in your language, then uh, please order that one uh, if, you, if you'd prefer to do that. So yeah, but thank so you, Rachel. Cool. This is... Yes, <laughs> Jay, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for being a part of this community and for consistently sharing your light and putting goodness out into the world in a wild and crazy time. I think anyone who gets to interact with you, even just online, feels the energy that you put out there. So thank you so much for the time and hanging out.